0: Well, good morning, uh, everybody. For those of you that I've not had an opportunity to meet before, uh, my name is Mike King, and as a senior pastor here at Suburban, I have a privilege of just leading a really tremendous group of uh, volunteers and staff and all that we do together as a church. And, you know, sometimes... God's just good. Sometimes he kind of works in the details to bring things together without us even thinking about it. Like I, as we were putting together the service for this weekend and, you know, lining things up for, for Shane to share about Dean and the opportunity to support what he does with chaplains, it like didn't even cross my mind that it's Memorial Day weekend. And there, there's some overlap there, right? You know, Memorial Day is a, it's a national holiday. It's not a church holiday, but it is a day where we stop and we recognize that as a country, Uh, Christians in the church, but actually people of all faith, we have tremendous blessings because we live here. Like, because of the sacrifices that others have made over the years, we have the opportunity to do things that many Christian brothers and sisters around the world don't get to do. We can gather freely to preach and to worship and do all that. And for that, we should be very, very grateful for the people who were willing to make that sacrifice so that we can enjoy the freedoms we have today. And in a similar sense, we we can be really grateful that we as a church have an opportunity to support uh, local ministries like Dean and what he does in reaching out to first responders who are also willing to put themselves in harm's way at times to allow us to live and to really thrive and flourish in life. You know, Shane was talking about that over and above offering. A lot of you know uh, you know we, we take an offering every week that goes to support the general fund and the operations of the church, and you can do that online or in basket in the back, and a portion of that we take about 10 percent, and we give to missionaries and local ministries uh, like deans. But then once a month, you know, usually on the last Sunday of the month, we try to highlight one of these local or global ministry partners and really invite people to give to them in a, a special way if God leads them to do that. So as you leave today, there'll be some baskets at the back. And if you put money in there, just know that every penny that goes in there is going to go to support this ministry to chaplains and the really vital and life-giving work that they're doing in our community. Um, so yeah, it was one of those things, as, as, as the service came together, I was like, ooh, <laughs> well, we look better than we are. <laughs> um, but you know, so sometimes God, God brings things together in ways that are, are just kind of delightful, and you're like, oh, look at how that worked out. And then, and then sometimes, right, things come together in ways that are important and significant, uh, but maybe not quite as cheerful. Uh, like, so for example, this week we're in the middle of the sermon series where we're looking at, at what the Bible says about these very difficult topics. And, you know, last week, you know, actually months ago, we're lining this out. I'm like, all right, well, that weekend, we'll talk about all these violent texts in the Bible, right? You know, especially these texts where it seems like God is commanding the slaughter of women and children. And then to hear the news about what happened at school in Texas this week and think, oh, really? I got to get up and talk about that this week? Uh, maybe it'd be better to, like, last week's sermon was good. Maybe we should just do that one again. That'd be a lot easier. Um, but, but, you know, this is real life And and what we try to do as a church is go back to this ancient text that was written thousands of years ago and help us understand how it prepares and equips and empowers and calls us to live in this world today. And this is the world that we're in, you know. So what what does it look like for God's Spirit to help us follow Him in this? So let let, let me set the the topic up in this way. Um, Some of you guys may have seen this. There was a video that came out on YouTube a few years ago and I think they were Dutch, like they're speaking some European language, but it's these man-on-the-street interviews, right? So these guys out there on the street with a microphone, and they have a book, and the title of the book is The Holy Koran. And they're stopping people on the street reading selected passages from that book to them to, to get their response. And these are some of the passages they read. So one says, If you reject my decrees and abhor my laws, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. Another one says, "If two men are fighting and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant, and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts, you should cut her hand off. Show her no pity." Well, as you can imagine, the, the, the reaction of the people on the streets was just horrified. Right? They're like, "Oh my gosh! Like, we can't endorse that. That's just awful." One person went so far as to think, "Can you imagine? Can you imagine how warped your worldview would be if you grew up in something with this sort of as, as a foundation of your faith, as your teaching?" Well, it's at that point that the guys pulled the cover off the book and showed them, hey, this is not actually a Koran. These are passages from the Christian Bible. So those two passages actually come from the Old Testament books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And the people's response to that was just fascinating, right? Some of them, they were just completely amazed that, like, they had no idea that there were texts like this in the Bible. And for others, they were like, well, I think the the argument still holds, right? If, If that's your foundational text of your faith... Just imagine how it would warp your worldview if you grew up with that being the teaching you were sitting under. But here's the thing. These passages, right, as awful as they may be that describe these acts of violence, they are in the Bible, right? And there are passages in the Bible that talk about God killing or or seemingly commanding people to kill in his name, including killing women and children. So, as Christians all throughout the ages, right, we, we hold to the idea that the Bible is not just any other book. Instead, it, it's God's true word to us. Yet, many people, they, they look at the Bible's impact on the world today, and they think it really has a negative, destructing influence on the world, right? And, and they point to verses like this that, that show God acting violently or commanding violence in his name. And the, the fact that those are in the Bible are confusing, right? Because as Christians, we have a picture in our head of God who's, who's loving, and compassionate, and caring, and just. So it's very difficult to imagine that God saying something like this. Now, go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants. Or what do you do with verses like this one in the book of Psalms, where where God's people are wishing judgment on their captors, and they say, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. See, these verses, are, they're right there in black and white on the pages of our Bible. And we believe that the entire Bible is God's accurate and inspired word to us, right? The very first sermon in the series, we looked at the history, the development of the Bible, and we argued that God was the author and the inspirer, the one who was behind it all, so that we can have 100% confidence that the words on the pages of our Bible are the words that God wanted to be there. The question then, of course, that that raises is, <laughs> what on earth do you do with verses like that? And that's what this sermon series is all about, to to try to answer that question. We're trying to do the work in this series to become the kind of people who are able to correctly handle the word of truth, which is the way Paul, an early Christian leader, described it. So over the last few weeks, we've been talking about how there are different principles of faithful reading that, that help us as we approach the text. We actually wrote them up, put them on some bookmarks. There's still some on those back tables if you want to grab one as you leave. And this morning, we're going to use those principles to dig into these kind of violent texts in the Bible and help us see, okay, do these principles help us make sense of those passages in some way? But I've, I've got to be honest with you all. Like, Out of all of the topics in this series, this is the hardest one for me to talk about. You know, when it comes to thinking about, like, okay, what does the Bible say about women or about slaves? You know, that's something that I've studied. I feel like there's answers to that. Or even next week, right? Next week, we're looking at at science and the Bible and evolution and how do all those things fit together. You know, that's something that over the years I've really dug into, and I I feel like there's some really solid answers to those questions. Um, But this, man, this is a topic that really continues to challenge me. So because of that, I'm really drawing on the work of another pastor a little bit more directly than I typically do in a sermon. Uh, There's a book that was written not long ago by a man named Dan Kimball, who's a pastor down in California. It's called How Not to Read the Bible. And he has an an approach to looking at these texts, these violent texts in the Bible, that was really one of the most helpful ones that I've come across. I just want to share some of of those thoughts with you in my own as a way to hopefully you'll find this as helpful as I did. Um, So today, right, we're looking at these violent passages in the Bible and trying to say, how do we make sense of this? And we're going to look at two passages in particular. We're going to look at a a verse from the Old Testament where it seems like God is commanding genocide in his name, and then we're going to go back to that verse from Psalm 137 talking about how, you know, they wish that they would take their babies and beat them to death on the rocks. So it's pretty chipper uh, where we're going today. It's a really cheery topic. But, but before we jump into that, there's a couple of things about violence in the Bible in general I think we need to point out to, to lay as a foundation for this. And the first thing to notice is that while there definitely is quite a bit of violence in the Bible, oftentimes the church has not done a very good job of talking about that. Uh, oftentimes, whether it's with adults or kids or whatever, is when, when we teach on these passages that the violence plays into it, we tend to sort of focus on, well, what are the other lessons we can pull from this? And you just kind of leave the violent stuff off to the side. So just an example of that, right? There's the, the story in the Old Testament of, of Joshua fighting the Battle of Jericho, right? We, a lot of us know that. There's a song, right? We teach it in Sunday school, right? Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down, right? So it's this great story. Uh, God's gonna help them attack the city. So once a day for six days, they walk around the city. And then on the seventh day, they walk around seven times. And at the end, they blow their horns and God shows up and the walls of the city fall down. And it's this great story. But do you know what happens next in the story? So after the wall falls down, says, Joshua and the army enter the city, and they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkey. Right, so it's not as kid-friendly, but Dan Kimball wonders, you know, maybe we should rewrite that song, right? You know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and he killed all the women and children. And again, like, it's really, if you stop and think about it, it's kind of remarkable that Christian parents give their kids Bibles and desperately hope that they will read them. Because there are sections of this Bible that are like NC-17 and need to have parental advisory kind of labels on them. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, we need to start with our six-year-olds and teach them the story of Jericho and like, and then Joshua killed everybody. No, we've got to talk about this in ways that are appropriate with where people are and their age. But it doesn't do us any favors to just avoid the violence that's in the text. And it certainly doesn't help us answer the questions that many people have about Scripture. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And, and again, I, I think people, these are very difficult passages to deal with in a lot of ways. And over the years, people have come up with a lot of different ways to try to wrestle with it. Some people, they just look at it and they're like, well, it's God's will, right? God's God, he can do whatever he wants to. If he wants to kill the people, who are we to question it? Let's not even talk about it. Uh, other people prefer to just ignore it altogether. Like, there's a lot of other good stuff in the Bible. Let's talk about that and not even worry about these parts here. Other people really struggle with this because they, they have a picture in their mind of you know, the Old Testament God who's vengeful in killing people, and then the picture in their mind of a loving New Testament Jesus, and they're just not quite sure how those things go together. So each of these ideas and some of the issues they raise are things we're gonna look at together in Tuesday night on the deep dive that we're doing. It has been a really rich experience over the course of this series to come together each week, midweek, and and just have a chance to talk about and dig into some of these topics in a deeper way. So we'll be doing that again this Tuesday night from 6.30 to eight here in the sanctuary. We'll stream it on Zoom if that helps. And we're really trying to make this accessible to people. So we're gonna provide a pizza and salad for dinner at six. So if it would help you, you maybe you're coming straight from work. If it would help you for us to feed you, just uh, let the office know you're coming so that we can make sure that we've got enough food. So that's, that's one thing to keep in mind, okay? There is violence in the Bible, and the church sometimes minimizes it. We shouldn't do that. But I, I think the opposite is true as well. It's also important to remember we, we shouldn't blow this out of proportion because the violent texts in the Bible are pretty few and far between. Now, if you remember, one of the goals of the Bible is to introduce us to God and his actions in human history so we can respond to him. And the overwhelming picture that we get of God in the Bible is that he is loving and just and caring, So, for example, when when God is introducing himself to Moses in the book of Exodus, which is actually the next sermon series we're going to do, uh, he describes himself this way. He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, this verse right here is one of the most repeated verses in the entire Bible, because this is the verse that other books of the Bible quote more than any other Bible verse. And the reason I think the other authors of Scripture keep coming back to this is because it really does introduce us to who God is at, at his core, at his, his character. And we need to remember that, yes, there are times when God seems to command violence, but, but he doesn't do it the way we do it, right? He, he's not being vindictive or selfish or anything like that. We have to remember that he is a God who's concerned with justice and his promised to uphold the cause of the oppressed. So when you see God expressing his anger, usually it's an expression of his just love and his protection for people, right? Love, compassion, patience, forgiveness, and protection of the weak, they are central to who God is. And we run the risk of forgetting that if we just really focus in on these selected texts where it shows violence. You get a distorted picture of God. So just an example of that, um, it kind of shows you the danger in, in not looking at the whole story and just pulling out selected scenes. So I want to show you a quick video. How many of you guys, just by any chance, have seen the movie Mary Poppins? Uh, yeah, I know. It's not a very popular movie. Not many of us have seen it. Um, and this is, the, this is the old version, right, with Julie Andrews from The Sound of Music. Uh, yeah, you know, Mary Poppins, she's, it's the story of this magical, caring nanny who shows up with this family in time of need and does these amazing things. Well, I want to show you, it's just about a minute long, but it's a video that somebody came up with about a year ago where they pulled different scenes from the movie and framed it up as a trailer for a very different movie uh, that they called Scary Mary. So let's go ahead and watch this. Okay, so question for you. Are all of those scenes in the movie Mary Poppins? Yes. Yes. And if you've never seen the movie Mary Poppins before, and those are the only scenes that you had seen from it, you could very easily walk away with this idea that she's this horrible, terrible, scary figure. But if you've seen the whole movie, right, including all of the scenes where she's loving and she's kind, and she's reminding us that just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down and chim chim and all that kind of stuff, you realize that that's not a very accurate description of who mary poppins is right and the same thing can happen with these texts of violence in the bible if we just look at the isolated scenes of violence outside the context of the bigger story you can walk away from this picture of it thinking that that god is really terrifying and mean and vindictive Um, but when you look at the whole story it really gets balanced out by all of these this overwhelming number of scenes that remind us that he's slow to anger and he's loving and he's compassionate so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a couple of these specific texts where he's commanding violence or there's violence and just see where that fits in the story of the Bible as a whole and how we can make sense of that. So, for example, uh, verses that seem where God seems to be uh, commanding genocide or mass murder of an entire people group or town. So there's actually a number of those in the Bible where God says things like this. You must destroy them totally, show them no mercy, and do not leave anything that breathes alive. So what happens when we we take all these principles of faithful reading and we apply it to these verses? Well, When we do, I think we find a number of things that are helpful for us. And, And first, one first thing you gotta notice is that most of these verses come from a very limited time period in history where God was sending the people of Israel to take possession of the land that he promised them. They're not found all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament. And I think this really helps counteract the idea that, that, you know, God is just constantly angry, that every day he wakes up and he's like, well, what city am I going to smite today? Right? No. Instead, you've got to remember, okay, when God sent his people into the promised land, his intention wasn't to just destroy everything in his path. His intention is to try to prepare a place for his people and for his presence to live. And as he's doing that, as he's driving people out, all along the way, uh, God gave the people of Israel, the people that Israel ended up fighting, opportunities to join him and turn from him and avoid battle and destruction. So when you read these, these texts, you've got to remember that God is not just randomly ordering battles for battle's sake. Or he's not encouraging violence for violence's sake. Right? He orders it for specific situations during a specific time period, and most of it is finished within the span of about a generation, Uh, Another thing I think that's important to notice is that people often do think about these commands in terms of genocide, and that's not actually what's going on. Right? Genocide, by definition, is the deliberate killing of a group of people because of their ethnicity, or their nationality, or some kind of identity marker that they have. Well, here the the battles that God calls His people to engage in—they're not based on race. They're based on the unwillingness of people in a particular location. To, to join with God in what he's doing. Right? It's only after the people of Canaan refuse to come to God uh, that he ends up attacking them and driving them out. Right? And you see the same logic applies to the people of Israel. Later, when they're in the land, when they turn their back on God, when they rebel against him, God allows a foreign army, the Babylonians, to come in and to attack them and lead them into exile. Right? So th- these scenes of violence, they grow out of people's different responses to God, not out of something that's like core to their racial or national or ethnic identity. Uh, A third thing that can help us kind of get a sense of what's going on here is knowing a little bit more about the historical context and knowing who the people were who were living in this land and all the really wicked and evil practices that they engaged in, knowing because God didn't want those practices to influence his people. Uh, God, and remember we've talked about this in the series, God wanted his people to be holy, to be set apart, to live differently so that, so that they could look different than the world around them. They could show the world around them there's a different way to live. And he realized that his people were very, very easily influenced by others. And when you look specifically at some of the worship practices of the people who were living in the land at that time, you really find some horrifying things. So for example, one of the groups in the land at that time was the Canaanites. And one of the the primary gods that the Canaanites worshipped was a god named Moloch. So Moloch is almost always represented as a statue of like a person with like a giant bull's head. And when they built a statue of Moloch, he had his arms out like this and like his, his belly was left open so that they could build a fire in there. And after building a fire in there, what they would do to offer sacrifices to Moloch is that they would take babies and children, lay them on his arms so that they could be burned alive in the fire. So the the Greek historian Plutarch is describing this practice, and he said that when these sacrifices were going on, they actually had to line the area in front of the statue with people who were playing trumpets and people who were playing drums so they could drown out the cries of the children who were dying and the cries of their parents that had, had their children taken from them. So those are some of the people living in the land. Delightful bunch of folks. Um, Other religious practices at this time included worship of gods like Baal and Ashtoreth. And oftentimes that that involved parents bringing their children to the temple to be used in ritual prostitution. And, And understanding that these were some of the kinds of practices that were going on, can help us understand why God would bring judgment on them because God is on the side of the oppressed. God is on the side of justice. And God made it clear to the people of Israel, hey, I'm not bringing you into this land because you're like way better than everybody else. I'm bringing you into this land as a direct response to the wickedness of these nations. You can see that God's using Israel to to exercise his judgment on the people who were doing this. God knew that this evil was like a cancer, that that his people could be spread to them. So the battles that he ordered were ultimately about protecting his people and the rescue mission that he wanted to to try to bring about through them. And another thing to remember, we already mentioned this briefly, is that God gave the people that he's attacking here warning over hundreds of years sometimes. Oftentimes, he waited generations for them to change before driving them out. So at one point in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible... God is talking to a man named Abraham about how one day his, his, his descendants will grow up into this nation. They're going to move into the promised land. But he says, before you do that, you're going to spend 400 years living in Egypt. And he has a really interesting reason for why that's going to happen. Uh, he says there's going to be this delay because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, what does that mean? I mean, most of the scholars who look at that, they, they realize that, okay, God is waiting patiently for the Amorites, who are people who are living in that promised land right next to the Canaanites. God is giving them time to turn from their evil practices and to put their faith and their trust in him. And when you read different parts of the Bible, you realize that some of them did that, right? So in the book of Joshua, we meet a woman named Rahab. She's in Jericho, right, where the walls come tumbling down. And Rahab tells these two Israelites who are spying out in the lay land, she's like, oh, yeah, I've heard about your God. I've heard what he did when he rescued you from Egypt. I want to sign up, right? I want to be on your side. I want to follow him. And because of that decision, she was spared. And actually, she became part of the family tree of Jesus himself. Or you think about another Old Testament story, like the story of Jonah, like beyond the the fish and all that. The point of that book is that God sent Jonah to warn the, the Assyrian Empire, who was just a tremendously violent nation at that time. And Jonah goes, and he gives like the most half hearted sermon you have ever heard in your life, but the people repent. Because God wants people to have an opportunity to turn. In fact, in in another book of the Old Testament, he says this. He says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their wicked ways and live? Yeah, the answer to that is no, he doesn't take pleasure in the death of anyone. He wants everybody to turn and live, which is why when you read these these scenes of violence, you have to remember they were always preceded by God's patience, often for centuries and generations. So while I think these ideas can help us begin to make some sense of the violence in the Old Testament, I realize that there are just a lot of other unanswered questions. I mean, I mentioned at the start that this, this is a difficult topic for me personally. And while these ideas kind of help me begin to understand it, help me think about it a little differently, I still wrestle with some aspects of this. Um, but what I do is I bring that wrestling to God. And I try to remember, okay, what do I know about God as a whole? What do I know about God as a whole from the entire story of the Bible? I know that he's patient and he's loving and he's compassionate. So while there are some things in the Bible I don't fully understand, I believe with all my heart that the Bible shows us enough truth to put our faith in Christ and trust him. It it makes me think about this this quote by Corrie Ten Boom, who uh, was a Dutch woman, I believe, who survived the Nazi concentration camps. And she just talked about the, the fact that sometimes there are things about the future we don't know. And she said that we should never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God, right? When there are things that we don't know, when there are questions we don't have the answers to, we can choose to bring those to God and be like, I don't really know what to do with this. But I do know that this about you is true. This is what I've read. This is what I've learned. This is what I've experienced. So I'm just gonna hold on to these confusions and questions with an open hand, and I'm gonna choose to lean into what I do know of you. And that idea, right, of being able to come to God honestly and share where we're at, is I think actually that the key to understanding the puzzle that's behind the other verse I said we'd look at from Psalm 137 where the poet is, is hoping that the, the infants of his enemies will be beaten to death on the rocks. Yeah, not an easy verse. Right? But again, if you don't pay attention to the context of that, you could easily fall into the trap of thinking, well, that must be what God wants. I mean, the Bible's his book after all, so if it's in there, it must be his words. It must be his desire but we've got to think about the context, right? And one of the, the, the kinds of context we have to think about is what kind of writing is it? And the Psalms are poems, right? They're songs. The Book of Psalms is a collection of 150 songs and poems that were used in the worship life of the people of Israel. And like other songs and poetry, like some of the songs we sang this morning, they, they contain, the writing style contains metaphors and striking imagery that's trying to convey emotions, and then you have to think about the history of it too, right? Because this particular poem was written when the people of Israel were living in exile in Babylon. And think about how they got there. Just a few years before this poem would have been written, the Babylonian army came and invaded the nation of Israel, right? In about 576 BC. And they surrounded the capital city of Jerusalem. And they laid siege to the city, which meant like for almost a year, there was no food coming into the city. And the people in the city began to starve. And then eventually, the Babylonian army breaks through the walls, and historians record what happened there, and just the scenes of horror are unimaginable. I mean, they killed pretty much everybody who was left in the city, and they did, in fact, throw many babies over the wall to their death. And it's a brutal practice, but this was very common at that time. Because if you stop and think about it, right, the army, they've walked hundreds of miles to invade your city. And they come in, and there's a bunch of babies left. Well, they don't want to take the babies as prisoners. They certainly don't want to have to care for them in the 100-mile journey back home. So as brutal as it is, they often would just kill the babies in whatever way was quickest. And that's what the poet saw happen because a few people survived that attack and were hauled off into exile in Babylon. And they're trusting that one day God's gonna bring them home, but they're also in the middle of just such incredible grief and sorrow because of what they've seen. And it's in the midst of that situation that the author writes this poem. And that specific line, I think, grows out of the horrors that he saw. It's like in that poem all of the trauma and the sorrow for what he had seen that day in Jerusalem, it just combines with God's deep desire to somehow see God bring a measure of justice to this situation, and that is what comes out. Now, I don't think that what comes out is a description of God's desire, and I don't think in any way can you read that as a command for what God's people should do to the babies of their enemies, Remember, it's a poem that grew out of this particular historical situation. It's his heart crying out to see some justice done somehow in the midst of this just almost unbearable situation. So two quick things that I want to point out about that. One, I'm really glad that this verse is in the Bible. Not because of the content of the verse. The content of the verse is horrifying. But I'm really glad that it's in the Bible because it shows us that, that we can come to God Honestly with whatever we are thinking and feeling. Like God doesn't require us to, to get our act together or to clean up or only say the right things to him or only share the right feelings with him before we come to him. Doesn't matter how ugly it is. God wants us to come to him just as we are. And that's something that if you've grown up in the church, if you've been in the church, like you, you hear about that a lot. But let's not lose outside of just how amazing that really is, that we don't have to put on a show. That where everywhere else we go in the world, we may have to put on a mask on what other people need to see or what we think people are like. Like, God wants us to come to him just as we are. He accepts us the way we are. But the second thing we need to remember is that everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Right? We read everything in the Bible through the lens of how his life and his death and his resurrection has changed everything. And about six centuries after this poem was written, Jesus walked on the earth and he showed up and he called people to a different way of life that involved not taking revenge into your own hands. So the early Christian leader, Paul, wrote a letter to some Christians living in Rome and and he applied the, the teachings of Jesus to this situation. He said this. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So following Jesus makes it possible for us to give up on our need to get revenge ourselves because we trust that God is the one true and just judge, right? His spirit can help us take our our natural desire for revenge and justice and and entrust those things to him, right? Knowing that, that he's gonna work it out in his timing. We don't have to seek that out ourselves. Instead, we can release that to him and we can invite his spirit to help us know how to love and how to serve those around us. So what what do we what do we do with all of this? If God's Spirit works in us to transform, sort of the the natural desires we have to be people who, who, in every situation, ask, "What does it look like to love and to serve in this situation?" What does that mean for the world that we live in today? I mean, if if you've paid any attention to the news this week, right, it was like 30 seconds after the news broke about what happened in Texas that people stopped talking about the tragedy and started going into their entrenched positions, right? The things that they already knew that they were going to argue the next time this happened, right? Almost immediately, you get to a point where people are like, well, you know, here's my agenda. And then over here, "Well, well, well, here's my agenda, right? What would it look like If people who follow Jesus in this world, when situations like this came up, instead of defaulting to our agenda, stopped and said, God, what does it look like to love and to serve in this situation? Would your Holy Spirit help us know what to do? Like as a nation, when it comes to this issue and others, we are completely broken, right? The the discussion is driven by people who are so far out in the extremes in both angles that we just forget about the fact that most Americans somewhere in the middle, realize that there is some way to have a conversation so this doesn't keep happening. And that is not to say that I've got a particular detailed agenda in mind. I don't. And I recognize that a church like Suburban, we've got people out. I mean, just in every spectrum where you want to be on any issue you can imagine. But I think the one thing that we would all benefit from with this issue and any others is instead of just saying, here's what I want, here's what I want to say, if first we just stopped and invited God's Spirit to help us say, God, what does it look like to love and serve in this situation. Because we can do better than this. I mean, really, think about where we are. Like, my overwhelming feeling this week was fear and helplessness. Right, fear that it's gonna happen to me one day. Fear that it's gonna happen to my kids. Helplessness that it keeps happening over and over and over again. And we're like, well, I guess we can't fix this. But you know, the one thing God doesn't want us to feel is fear, and helplessness, right? We just sang about that, right? I'm no longer a slave to fear, right? The power of the Holy Spirit lives in us. What does it look like to love and serve in this situation? You know, this really came home for us. So Friday afternoon, I, I kind of walk into our bedroom and find my wife crying and she's holding her phone, right? Because she'd just gotten a text from her sister that our 13-year-old nephew's middle school went into lockdown because there was a report of somebody with a gun coming into the building. And he is terrified that he is going to die. What does it look like to love and serve in this situation? What does it look like to not just immediately go over here or just immediately to run over here? What does it look like to love and serve in this situation? That is what God ultimately asks each of us to do, And that is what his Holy Spirit can help each of us do. So let's close out our time together today just praying that God would, in fact, help us know what it looks like to let love and service of people around us guide the way that we interact on all of these issues that really are pressing in our world today. Um, Would you pray with me? God, I'm really grateful that you are real and that you are here. I am grateful for good and encouraging people in my life who, when I went through this week and just defaulted to helplessness and throwing up my hands and thinking, this is the world we live in, it's never gonna change. Um, I'm grateful for people who reminded me, Lord, that there is always hope and there is always power to change because of you and your love and your grace and your power. I look at situations like this and I have no idea what it looks like to move forward. Um, But just like I'm happy to trust an unknown future to a known God, I want to trust that that there's an answer to this situation that you are uniquely calling your people to be a part of. God, you call us to be a people who are different than the world around us. The church is an alternative to the world around us, and your spirit's power makes that possible. And the world around us can't even have a conversation about this, Lord. So what does it look like to model a different way of life? What does it look like to let love and serving others be the defining principle in how you call your people to engage in this issue? Because you don't want us to feel helpless and you don't want us to live in fear. I don't know what the fix is, but I know you and I trust you. Would you help us, Lord, follow you in this situation, whatever that looks like, wherever that leads? And would you help us take this framework of what does it look like to love and serve others? And would you just help that become the default for every decision we make, every word we say, every step we take as we go through this life. Amen.